3: Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. Please help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.comslash slash
0: survey. So many books have so much dialogue, and you're playing all the characters. I mean, it's it's actually quite a gift because I get to be everybody. I get to be the detective, I get to be the man, I get to be the woman, I get to be the child. I mean, when, when does an actor get to do that? So that's um, awesome and also challenging. And I just have to trust myself. And if I, it sounds off to me, I just go back and redo it.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, hello. That voice that we just heard belongs to Abby Creighton. Who is she and what does she do?
3: Well, Abby is an actress who these days mostly does voice work. And in the interview today, we mostly focused on her work as an audiobook narrator. But she also does commercials, video games, and as we discussed in the Slate Plus segment, looping.
2: Looping. Amazing. I am very excited to hear all about this, in part because... I have recently started to regularly listen to audiobooks for the first time ever. In fact, it's been so long since I did it before that I still, in my brain, call them books on tape. But when (laughs) I am taking Chili, my dog, out on walks, I listen to about 30 minutes or so of a book, and it's been a deeply pleasurable experience. I take it that you are an audiobook aficionado.
3: Well, I, too, am a recent convert. I had tried them before several times, in fact, but I only recently like figured out how to incorporate them into my life. For me, at least, there's some sort of alchemic mixture of the right kind of focus and attention, a part of my day when I can take in language for pure pleasure and entertainment, and when it's not rude to have headphones on and be listening to something that only I can hear. And that combination of circumstances has been much easier to find in COVID time. And I also figured out some basic things like when to listen. So, for example, the ideal time to listen to nonfiction books that you want to pay close attention to is not the same time as the perfect moment for light as air romance novels, for example.
2: That's so fascinating because for me, I've realized the reason why dog walks are so perfect is that I have to be doing something physically or I get antsy. Mm-hmm. I do not get antsy reading a physical book, but just sitting there listening. Uh, I can't do it. I can't even listen to this podcast just sitting there listening. <laughs> I have to be walking around or, or just doing something with my body. Not something that takes mental effort, but something that just takes a little bit of my mind off what my body is doing so I can just listen and, and enjoy
3: Yeah, well, my deep, dark secret is that I mostly listen, again, not just to audiobooks, but to any audio entertainment when I'm trying to fall asleep. Like, it's a perfect thing to avoid the kind of squirrel wheel of your head, just kind of when you start going in circles and you just can't turn off your brain. It turns off my brain. But again, that's why I can't listen to, you know, concentration requiring nonfiction then that's for when I'm taking a walk or something like that.
2: Amazing. After your conversation, we'll be uh, answering a voicemail from a listener about how to remain creative when being creative feels impossible. And then we have a bit of a special treat for Slate Plus listeners. Tell us about it.
3: We do. Abby is going to explain what looping is, uh, what it means in the world of TV and movie production, and then she will recommend some of her favorite audiobook narrators.
2: That's so great. And just a reminder you will get access to that amazing content along with so many other members only benefits when you join slate plus here's some more zero ads on any slate podcast bonus episodes of shows like slow burn and dear prudence and you'll get to feel good about yourself because you're supporting the work we do right here on working it's only $1 for the first month and to sign up go to slate.com/working+ All right, now let's tune in to June's conversation with Abby Craden. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft in the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do... You call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options.
3: books do you record, like, say in a month?
0: I would say on average, um, three to four books a month. Do you
3: know how many you've recorded over the course of your career?
0: I believe close to 400.
3: Whoa! how <laughs> long have you been doing
0: it? <laughs> um, probably about 15 years. Has the pace picked up recently? It's kind of the same. I just think the, uh, for me, I think the audience has gotten broader with uh, COVID and Mm. people just needing other forms of entertainment. And the fact that we can do it from our home studios is a really amazing part of working that continues for voiceover actors.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, you're working from your home, as you just said. Is that something that you did before COVID? Or was that a change that you made when the pandemic closed things down?
0: It was something I did before. Mm. I think when the audible boom happened and everything was being recorded, there was such a need for recording studios that they asked people who did also other voiceover to have a home studio. So I was already set up. So I have been doing this for a long time. So it it was not a struggle for me.
3: So what's the first thing that you do when you've been
0: assigned a new book that you have to narrate? I always have to read the book first to prep it. Uh, I take notes. Sometimes I can kind of shorthand, depending if I'm on a series and I know the characters. But I kind of get ideas of the feel, the rhythm of the book. And if there's dialects, you know, I sort of figure out what I'm going to do with that. Sometimes I contact the author to find out. Like, I just did a whole fantasy series, which had a made-up language. Oh. And I had to have a long conversation <laughs> <laughs> how this was all pronounced. You know, because once you start going, you have a limited time, I do, to get it done Um and you just kind of go. There's not rehearsals. You mm-hmm. kind of get, get in your booth, you schedule your time, and you go, and you trust yourself. You don't do a bunch of takes. You just kind of have to intuitively know what you're doing and and accomplish it in the, set, the time you've set aside. Are you working from, like, the book, or
3: do you have some other kind of
0: script? Um, I have an iPad, so I have a PDF that's digital, so I okay. can scroll with my finger. And I can also – I put my um, book into – I annotate, which is a, a way to kind of notate things and you can look up things, you know, how they're spoken. So most audiobook narrators probably get a digital PDF of the book and then put it inside that and then they can highlight words and you have it much more accessible. So I look at that. I have a microphone. That's I have my computer outside my booth. I have a screen that mirrors it so I can <gasps> activate Pro Tools and record myself and punch and roll, which is how you kind of punch in. And I sit here at my mic, and I just do everything <laughs> for my... Yeah. So you, you mentioned highlighting certain words. Um,
3: there's been a move toward, like, inhabiting characters, doing voices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot less of that she said stuff anymore. And you just kind of said, well, you know that's Cam or that's Blair. You can tell which mm-hmm. series I've been listening to. Um, sure. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> You go from one character to the other, but do you kind of have the different characters in different colors or anything like that to kind of just alert you who's talking?
0: I don't, actually. I, I um. What I mark often is she said with a tremor in her voice or she whispered. That's what I need to catch my eye. Oh. I kind of get in a rhythm and I know who's talking, but it's always those things that can trip me up. Because the smoother I can do, the less I interrupt myself, I, I feel like the better the performance is because I just kind of get in a flow with it. When the kiss ended, Stark opened her eyes, amazed to find she couldn't focus. Her head was spinning too much. That was awfully nice, she managed, her voice slightly unsteady.
3: So let's talk about the accents, the different voices. Uh, accents, I think, is not quite right because it's not just accents. It's different tones of voice. Actually, I shouldn't describe it. How do you describe how you do different voices?
0: Well, I feel that I am lucky that I have a wide range in my voice. I can go very deep and gravelly and I can also go high and soft and kind of young, So, I, which has offered me the opportunity to do lots of different genres. I've done kids' books. I've done young adults. I've done all sorts of different things, so I sort of feel into, I always find the person who's me, which is kind of this tone. And I'm like, oh, thank God she's me. Okay, good. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and then I find the, then I kind of go like, oh, she's deeper than me. or And then I kind of go down here. Or, oh, she's up here and she's breathy. So it is a, it's kind of like the palette of what I can do. I just sort of pick and choose because I think what's really important when you're listening is just to be able to know who's talking. Yeah. Um, and one of the hardest things is when you have a group of like five men and they're all 40 and they're all having a beer together and how do you make those voices sound different how do you distinguish them
3: uh what can you do with your voices to like indicate five different guys um when they're all kind of similar
0: yeah well there's definitely pitch so high low uh tone could be um gravelly as opposed to um nasal (laughs) that's probably (laughs) something someone's always nasal um And there could be rhythm. So there's someone who speaks really fast and then there's someone who speaks slower. Um, And sometimes, which is interesting, is I imagine them and then my voice changes a little. Like I can imagine the character and it adds a different flavor. It's all of those things. Yeah. And and sometimes I will make notes on the side, especially if it's a long scene and they seemed it's important. So I know who's saying what, when. And I put a little post-it by my iPad so I can remind myself if they're all talking to each other. (laughs) But it is challenging, for sure.
3: Don't you ever lose
0: track of
3: how a character talks, especially if, you know, it's not a central character, but somebody who was in the beginning, then disappears for 150 pages, comes back. How do you, like, do
0: you kind of keep some kind of reference? How does that work for you? Yeah, I mean I usually have notes that I have like I do digitally so I have character notes, but I also have an ability with Pro Tools to flag characters uh-huh. and find them in a previous track. So if I do lose that character and I want to go, oh god, what did I do with that? I can actually go back and listen to myself. <laughs> it makes perfect sense and that's yeah. that's
3: you're kind of then you kind of imitate them in a sense that Exactly, exactly.
0: I'm like, oh, I did, did I do that? Okay, well, here we go. I gotta do it again. Amazing. (laughs) Um,
3: I'm kind of wondering, like, if there are voices that are harder on you that are just like, take more out of your voice, which I'm sure it's very important for you to protect, Mm -hmm. given the nature of your work. Um, Have you and I have also you, of course, you mentioned having read them first. But I wonder, are there ever times when you've kind of Thought that a character was going to be relatively small and done a certain voice, which is a little hard, then realized they're actually going to have a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like, has anything like that happened where you've kind of regretted assigning a particular timber to a character who's who's then it's kind of cost
0: your voice? I'm lucky that I have never, um, had like vocal fry after working, but I definitely have picked voices too low. Like a man where it's like, they talk about how gruff he is and his voice is like sandpaper and you're like, Oh, I can do that. And you're like, yeah, but do I want to do that? And does someone want to listen to that for six hours? You know? (laughs) So I'm like, oh shoot, I I shouldn't have done that. You know, or sometimes, um, like a Scottish accent. I'm like, no, it's so hard (laughs) to make it sound clear. Um, you know, and I, you know, I could do some dialects, but I'm not a dialectician. I do the best I can, and I'm I'm sure some people are like, "Oh, that was you know, if they if they that's their native dialect," but I I try to honor that because I think it's important.
3: Yeah. So I was recently listening to an audiobook, which was very well done. You were not the narrator, were one of the main characters was Australian, um, and everybody else was American. The narrator was American, um, and that back and forth that you. Often, you know, that's what characters do. They go back and forth. Mm. Um, Like, do different kind of back and forths cause more problems than others?
0: Absolutely. And I think that um, what I feel, and I have to just trust within myself, is that I can feel like the truth. Like, that feels like, oh, that feels like the truth to me. And when I'm off, I stop and I redo it. And if it's an accent, I'm like, oh, because I have a pretty good ear. And I'm like, that does not sound right to me. (laughs) You know, so sometimes I will do. And especially in there's so many books have so much dialogue Mm. and you're playing all the characters. I mean, it's it's actually quite a gift because I get to be everybody. I get to be the detective. I get to be the man. I get to be the woman. I get to be the child. I mean, when when does an actor get to do that? So that's um, awesome and also challenging. And I just have to trust myself. And if I sounds off to me, I just go back and redo it. Do you also edit? You know what, so you said if you if you do do
3: retakes, is it you that's kind of picking out the the version to use, or do you hand off the audio to some for someone else to put together?
0: I don't do the post. That's
3: hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's only so much a person can do. Exactly. I think you mentioned earlier talking to authors, and I wondered, kind of, in what circumstances you had. You know, you'd reached out. Is it to get more insight on characters or or, or why would you why do you talk to them?
0: Um, I would say mainly it's words. Uh, well, in a fantasy book, it's for sure a language I don't know how to say. And I and I always feel like, oh, my God, if this person is listening to their book and I've mangled their language, that is awful. So I really honor the writer. I really want to do it right for them. So I would say it's accents. Does this person need an accent? You said they grew up in Italy, but they've been in America for 30 years. You know, what do you think about that? And word pronunciation of a place that I just can't find it. I have to do that research myself or I can get someone to help me. But if there's some place I just, I can't find how to pronounce something, the author usually knows.
3: Do you have to get buy-off for any of the voices or to do for the voices before you start recording? I mean, I imagine it would be, impossible if you got feedback after you'd finished if someone said uh, no I need you to redo this voice that's not working Um, so you kind of have to commit at the beginning do you consult with anyone how does that work
0: no I consult with myself Um, (laughs) I have creative license which is amazing I really do and I don't know if it's once you've done a certain amount of books people trust you um and when I worked with directors in the beginning more, it would be a discussion with a director for sure. And we would try out a voice and he or she would be like, nah, I don't know, that's And we would kind of select. But when I'm on my own, I'm on my own. And I just have to follow my intuition and trust myself. And mm-hmm. um, they basically just come back with any mistakes that you've made and you have to fix. Um, or if you used a wrong character voice, if you made a mistake, you have to fix that. But in terms of selecting what kind of voice... That's your choice. Yeah. And do you work for Audible or are you a freelancer? I freelance. I work for um, whoever I'm sort of a whoever hires me. I have about eight different companies I work for. And I've also produced a couple on my own when authors contact me directly. And I have a post-production guy I know now that I can send my stuff to. But I, yeah, I work for whoever contacts me and I have time in my schedule and I'm interested. Yeah.
3: I first heard you doing lesbian romances. I know you mm-hmm. don't only do those, but you do a mm-hmm. lot. Like, have mm-hmm. Do people come to say, you know, I heard you on that series and I want you to do my books too,
0: um, and with other types of books that you do? I think um, I got in a pocket with the lesbian romances, which is amazing, and <laughs> so I am requested um, more in that genre. Mm. I think people get to know me and they're like, oh, her voice would be really cool. Like I just did a really interesting... Um, sci-fi book that's coming out called Dead Space by Kelly Wallace that's coming out next month, which is really interesting. And, you know, someone pitched me for it. And I think the author sometimes chooses, sometimes the producer just chooses.
3: Um, You mentioned, uh, you know, that you've done a bunch of, of lesbian romances. And I wonder, is that kind of more challenging? Because pretty, you know, speaking generally, there are really only women characters. There are very few children there are very few men, you know, not none, but very few. Um, does that kind of narrow the range that you have to
0: kind of work for as far as where you, like, pitch the voices? I actually love it because, um, like, when I did Alone by E.J. Noyes, which was one of my favorite books to do, I just love doing that book, and partly because <laughs> it's so well-written, and I I just loved her, the subject matter. But I also, having just two women, it was such a relief. The less characters, the better. I mean, I can then kind of do the pitch my voice down for one of them that kind of works for the main characters and um, not to stereotype but and then and then I have a softer version I sort of have the the gruffer and the softer and that (laughs) usually works for the main characters and then if they have friends or whatever that's I kind of go from there but that's sort of my go-to one's me one's me a little lower maybe one's me a little higher.
3: I have noticed that you tend to kind of do the and, and we're obviously speaking in a very well, I don't quite know the term, we'll just say we're speaking in stereotypical terms, but mm-hmm. the, the, the femme character tends to have a higher voice than the, the butch character, if there is such a thing, which there usually is in the type of books that I've heard, at least. Um, the, you know, the butch character has a deeper voice, which like in real life isn't necessarily so, but I'm guessing that's a decision you've made, um, you know, for sake of
0: distinction, yeah, I wouldn't say I go with, like, butch femme. I think I go with, like, description. So, mm. and if that turns out to be butch femme, that's just the way it goes. Like, for like the one you were talking about, Cameron, she's tough. She's a military person. She's got that, she takes care of people. She had that sound to me, whereas the other woman was more sophisticated. She was kind of a, <laughs> a politician. That's right. The currency of power today isn't arms, it's terror. And that is much subtler and much more difficult to defend against. If something were to happen to you, nothing will, Blair stated emphatically, hearing the worry in Cam's voice. I just try to figure out what the author is saying, and then I can sort of put the right feel to it. So that's how I approach it.
2: We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Abby Creighton after this. Hey, listeners, a couple things real quick. First, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a second of working. Also, if you have questions about the creative process, big or small, whether you're trying to loosen up your writing style or figure out what you want to work on, we would love to help. In fact, we're helping one of you this week. So drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us an old-fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. It doesn't have to be that old-fashioned. doesn't have to be a rotary phone. could be a cell phone. That's fine, but we really love phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Abby Craden.
3: Okay, I I am going to try really hard not to sound like Beavis or Butthead when I ask this question. Um, but I have to admit that I hadn't realized until recently, that audiobook narrators who do romances, or I guess, any books that include descriptions of sex, um, kind of acknowledge, you might say, the breathlessness, uh, or the different vocal presentations um, during that event. Um, Like, is it hard to narrate sex scenes?
0: No, not at all. It's, um, it's, I mean, I remember. <laughs> um, I have a 16-year-old, but he was like, like when I first started doing it from home, like a toddler, and I would be like, oh, "God, if he could hear if he could hear what's going on in here." Uh, you know, it's like phone sex. Um, no, it's not. It's just like being an actor in a on a film shoot, too. You just kind of it's it's not mechanical, but you're just doing it. You're like playing notes. It's like an instrument. Oh, these are the notes I'm playing right now. Amazing. And it's yeah. So you're in it, and you're you know you're in it, and you're kind of observing all the time, and. When you do straight romances or books where, I guess, straight people have sex, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> do, they, do, you, do you present it differently? Um, no, I think it's exactly the same. I think it's funny that there's different styles and themes to lesbian romances mm-hmm. as opposed to straight romances. Everybody's got their, like, thing, that <laughs> the, for, the kind of formula almost. Although right. I think lesbian romances have more nuance and more variety in how the, it turns out. But... Um, but it's it's just love, you know. Love yeah. is love. Yeah. yeah.
3: I'm a relatively recent adopter of audiobooks, um, and I know that there's a lot of variation in the animation level of narration. Um, you know, some people vary the voices a lot; some play it pretty flat. Um, how do you kind of figure out where to fall between? you know, relatively, you know, straight ahead and, you know, super animated. What drives the thinking there?
0: I think I just follow my intuition about it. And I know some people love it and some people don't like it. And that's okay. Um, I have to do what I feel is is right and feels like my expression. And I'm luckily more people like it than hate it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, I I do think audiobooks have become more performance-oriented, so I really try to breathe life into the characters, and I try to keep the narration fairly easygoing on the ear and straightforward, gentle, letting people come into the story, and then it gives me the ability to really express the characters fully because I won't wear the listener out with that if I have the narrator is a little more gentle, unless it's first person, which is a little different too. mm mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine, because I listen to, I listen back to mine sometimes to see what I did. I listen to other people. I think it's really good to listen to the craft of it because um, yeah. you get, you kind of hear what other people are doing and, and where, where you're landing too sometimes. It's helpful. You don't only do novels, you also
3: record nonfiction books. Is it a different process of finding
0: the voice for uh, books where there's just narration? It's a bit of a relief, actually, to do nonfiction because there's no characters. Um, so I can just be myself. <laughs> so I would say I do the voice, that, my voice, my speaking voice. But I will say that if it's, um, I did a book on um, the hacker group Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And the book had kind of a spy feel to it, like a, like a sort of a dark tone. He was stationed on amphibious warships and got shot at on land in Kosovo. The experience made him resent the way war desensitized soldiers to human life. So I would say tone affects me. I will, I will just sort of, I can't even tell you what that means, but I just, it, it kind of goes in the mix. If it's a children's book about parenting, that will go in the mix for me. When my daughter is 18 months old, my husband and I decide to take her on a little summer holiday. We pick a coastal town that's a few hours by train from Paris, where we've been living. I just sort of take the tone of a book when I read it and I'm like, oh, it's kind of lighthearted or it's heavy and it's dark or it's has a music. And I, I just kind of feel into it. But it's my voice. You know, it's basically me with that sort of tone mixed in. But it is a relief not to have to do characters sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever change the books even
3: just a little bit to work better with narration? I mean, I don't know, for example, do you keep all the he said, she said you know, seds or, or make little tweaks like that?
0: I can't do any of that. I have mm. to, they literally pick through every single word has to be spoken that the author wrote. And my problem sometimes is I speak fast or I don't pronounce my D's. And <laughs> it's like you have to, it's almost like a newscaster. You have yeah. to hit the syllables, the consonants. You have to make sure you don't dip down on the endings, you know. So, But you have to honor the words are in front of you to a teak, You will get pickups and have to fix them if you don't.
3: So when you're reading a book just for fun, it's not a book that you've been assigned to make the audiobook version of. Do you find yourself like figuring out voices for the characters?
0: I don't. I, I actually read books, um, real books. I don't read on my iPad. I read ah. books where I can hold the paper because it's a different, I used to, I love to read. And I actually don't read as much as I used to because I read so much to prep. Mm. But I read real books when I read for pleasure. And I don't. I completely turn that brain, part of my brain off.
3: What's the hardest part of your job?
0: The hardest part of my job is the solitude. Um, I am a very, uh, I'm a people person. I think most actors love to, to talk to people and be in commu- or communicators. And it's been a struggle for me to work alone so much in a small space. Besides the sitting is hard mm. for me. I like to move my body. I like that feels really good to me. And I like to express, because uh, I'm a, th- a theater actor, mm. I like to express character in my body. So it's very hard to sit and contain all these emotions and just channel them through your voice because you cannot move or you make sounds that get on the recording. So um, that is challenging. And before COVID, I was really like, how do I, I've got to figure out how to have more interaction. I'm too much alone. And then COVID hit and I'm like, ah, I got this. Everyone's complaining about being isolated. I'm like, I know how to do this. I've been doing this for years. So it wasn't hard, but I would say the solitude is the hardest for me.
3: How did you come to realize that you have
0: a knack for voice work? Um, Well, I believe I was in an acting class years ago and someone's like, you should do voiceover. I was like, oh, really? Okay." well, (laughs) well, then it took like 15 years, you know, because it's such a hard business to break into to get a good agent. And I was I I just stuck with it. I have a, a strong will and I really wanted to work. And I was like, I can't. Film and TV was so elusive for a woman, um, especially when I came to L.A. And I started doing classical theater, and that was great. And then I sort of settled in L.A. I had a family, and um, I just kept knocking on the door of voiceover. And luckily, audiobooks, um, I was working in the theater, and a friend, uh, Robertson Dean, who's an amazing narrator, he was like, I'll coach you, I'll help you, and then mm-hmm. I'll walk in your demo. And I was like, okay. So he helped me, and then I just kind of for the first couple of years I worked with directors and I learned a lot. And then when they asked me to have my own booth and do it by myself, by that time I had enough books under my belt that I knew what I was doing. And then it just kinda grew. And then I think you build a a bit of a following. Yeah. I do think it's I, I think it's very interesting. I think voice and sound is super interesting because it so isolates I mean, I feel like all of me, all of me is poured into my voice. It's yeah. Not the way I look, yeah. you know, it's not your age, it's not it's not any of those things, it's not your body. And it's a really um, interesting distillation of, of who you are and who is attracted to that and receives that, you know, inside of themselves. Yeah. Just having some a voice in your ear, you know, telling you stories is it's kind of intimate.
3: It's incredibly intimate. And, and and as you just said that, it just made me realize, you know, as someone, as an actor who's trained, and th- the training is about putting your whole body into it and to, to mm-hmm. kind of take that training and to put it just into one of the, you know, I'm not going to break down how many tools the human body is, but
0: into one. That's got to be a little frustrating, right? Well, it's actually, when it's a really good book, something interesting happens for me where I kind of, this is going to sound a little weird, but I kind of trip out. Like I go into like a flow state where I'm sort of not here and I'm here. Like I'm in the story, almost when you read and you get lost in a book and you're like, wow, I just lost three hours and I was somewhere else. I can do that and still Move from character to character and narration. Like I kind of my my imagination likes it. I got I get to the journey, and it feels really good when that happens. Um, especially when I don't you know have technical like mistakes too much, and I can really kind of go off. It feels it's very pleasurable to do it to narrate.
3: Thank you so much. This was really interesting. So much fun. I feel very starstruck. Um, thank you oh, so much for talking. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: Raise your hand if you are burnt out.
2: If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine.
1: You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbett, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
4: and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there.
2: Wow, June, you know, what, what struck me right off the bat there is how self-reliant Abby has to be. I have actually narrated part of an audiobook once, a short story in a friend's uh, short story collection. And, uh, you know, you go to a room, there were lots of people there. I got, you know, asked if I wanted tea or whatever. (laughs) But for Abby Craden, she's her own recording engineer, her own dialect coach, her own director. She relies on her own gut feeling to figure out if she needs to take something again or not. That just, whew, that seems like a lot.
3: It is. I mean, I was really struck by that, too. It, it really boggled my mind. But as she said, that level of autonomy only came after years of doing this work, of being mentored by experienced narrators, of working with directors and recording a lot of books, basically of having reps under her belt. And that feels really important. A lot of creative work or a lot of work, period, but maybe especially creative work is vastly improved By serving an informal apprenticeship, like doing the work, getting feedback, getting more responsibility, making a few tweaks to your approach or technique, getting more feedback and so on. And I think the problems come when there's insufficient feedback, especially in those early stages. Um, Sure, some people are so talented that they don't need that loop and some people think that they don't need it, but most of us do. Otherwise, it's really easy to get into bad habits that can then be really hard to shed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's so smart. I loved your question about her own habits of reading for pleasure and the way that she kind of has to protect that part of her brain from the working part of her brain. I feel like since we're all working from home, it's really hard to maintain those kinds of internal boundaries.
3: Totally. A lot of my friends and colleagues have talked about a sort of flattening that's happened over the last year. Like, When is the workday over? I don't know. And I think this is particularly true for those of us who are lucky enough to make our living by doing something that's also very close to, or maybe even directly connected to the things that we really, really love. Like To take one close to home example, journalists who, believe me, love reading newspapers and magazines are always working when they're reading newspapers and magazines. They're like breaking down pieces to figure out why they work. They're admiring turns of phrase. They're getting new story ideas. They're adding authors to their mental Rolodexes. There's a lot going on. So when they're inhaling the latest New Yorker, is that work or pleasure? Well, it's both. But there are tricks that you can do to impose boundaries. One that I'm very fond of is changing locations from a space that you consider your office to a space that's more leisure oriented, like where you watch TV or whatever, But it has definitely been harder to find those very neat dividing lines when we're not commuting or going somewhere to work.
2: As I am recording this in my bedroom, (laughs) literally next to my bed, uh, Mm. I can sympathize with what you are talking about. Um, You are clearly a fan of Abby's work and know Mm. it well. What surprised you about her and her process over the course of this interview?
3: I... I'm really impressed that the books are just done straight through. Like in a novel, there can be a lot of back and forth conversations and really quick back and forth. And she acted like it was no big deal to keep those voices apart and just kind of inhabit the dialogue. And I think it seems that way to her because she's done it for a while and she's very talented. But I think most of us would be doing the wrong voice on the second turnaround. Um, But Isaac, you mentioned earlier that you have done some professional audiobook narrating yourself uh did you do different voices what was the hardest part of it for you
2: i had a great time doing it and i would love to do it more um there might be a chance that i wind up doing it actually for the method the book i wrote about um, method acting in the 20th century um i enjoy reading things out loud I, I do it in a number of different scenarios including to my daughter at night um oh. i i Uh, the specific story that I was doing was a story that I had actually performed. And the reason why they asked me to do it is that... All of the characters were kind of loosely based on various like Hanna-Barbera cartoons and stuff (laughs) like that. So they all had really crazy voices that I had had to invent when I performed it. And um, I think the recording team was struggling figuring out how to make heads or tail of what the story would sound like out loud. And the author was like, oh, actually, this friend of mine has already solved that problem because he had to perform it. So why don't you just talk to him? So, you know, I had to do a... um, Uh, A stuck-up, you know, stuffy theater critic who sort of, you know, talked like this, like he had a fake English accent because he wanted to be elegant and was sort of, you know, based on George Saunders and all about Eve, maybe a little bit. And then uh, uh, another time I had to be the sort of snidely whiplash villain and be like, (laughs) ah, I will get you. You know, like I had to do all of that stuff. Um, But they were so extreme that I had it clear in my head. Mm. I would imagine it's very challenging to have to do long stretches of dialogue mm-hmm. between two normal human-sounding <laughs> yes, characters. Yes, 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 uh, yes, You know, that does sound to me like the biggest challenge in general. The biggest challenge in my book will be that there's a lot of words that are in Russian that I even yeah. I don't know how to pronounce. But the oh biggest God. challenge in general, I think, is like, I must ask you to put down that knife. Oh, you need yeah. me You know, doing that yeah. stuff, I, I I imagine, is tough.
3: Right, right. It has to sound natural in a way that I mean, that's the great challenge of acting, I guess. But yeah, it's, I don't know, I, it seems like it's a super hard job to me.
2: Yeah, especially because, you know, prose dialogue is not the same as television dialogue or theatrical dialogue or cinematic dialogue. It actually works differently. It does different things. Often, if you read it out loud, it sounds highly artificial in a way that it does not actually feel artificial when your eye greets it on the page. Because there's lots of conventions we expect around dialogue. To give an example that anyone who's been through graduate school for writing knows, um, in general, in, in literary fiction and nonfiction... All dialogue gets the tag said, no matter what. yeah, Um, Because it's just a neutral thing that says, a person is saying this, we're going on. Sometimes in nonfiction you get explained, recalled, remembered, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're trying to situate when they said the quote in time. But Mm -hmm. if it's in dialogue, you either use said or nothing. Um, But doing that over and over again out loud can be pretty boring.
3: And, you know, when you're writing a novel, yes, it's it's in your head you're hearing it in your head but you're not reading it aloud the way you would something that was intended to live yeah. as something that people read out loud so yeah it's if it does work um it's a testament to a good reader and also maybe to write uh, a writer who just somehow did that without really necessarily thinking about it. So very high yeah. level of difficulty
2: absolutely june we have a great question from a listener this week and i'd love to know your thoughts Take it away, Cameron. Hi, I have a question about writing when you're stressed about non-writing matters. We often hear the advice to write whether you're inspired or not, and that's good advice. But I'm wondering about when writing seems impossible to to outside sources of stress, such as work or childcare or other other matters like that. Um, so, any advice that you have would be great and greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Goodbye,
3: Isaac. I'm going to throw this baby right back to you because I know this is something that you have thought a lot about.
2: Uh, Well, thank you. I I have indeed because I've had to wrestle with it a lot (laughs) over the last year and have often failed at it. Um, I've said a bunch of times here, and I know Ruman and June have said this in, in, in different ways, that creating the circumstances that allow you to be creative is actually often most of the creative job. Uh, That's where a lot of creativity goes into. And that's especially true right now. So, you know, when my kid's school went fully remote... And, you know, she's three doors down from me and she's, you know, yelling at the screen because she can't figure out how to get an app to work or whatever. It's very hard, even when I'm not directly watching her to be creative in those moments. So here are some thoughts I have that have come out in conversations I've had with other people who are struggling with these same things. The first thing is you have to keep expectations for what you're going to be able to accomplish reasonable. Mm -hmm. I am someone prone to unreasonable expectations of what I can do creatively in a given amount of time and under what circumstances. And so I've had to learn this the hard way that sometimes you need to be like, I'm only going to get so much done. I'm going to set low expectations and then overachieve it. Um, Because otherwise it can be very easy to get discouraged. Yeah. The other thing is that um, I have found it's very helpful to actually schedule specific time for whatever the creative endeavor is and to block it off in your calendar. And if you have a kid and a partner and all this other, like that might be difficult to do, but it involves having to ask the people in your life for the support you need. And usually, you, uh, you know, I have a friend who has a, an infant and a husband with a busy job and she's got a busy job and, you know, she and I were talking about this and I was like, well, well, what do you think you could ask for reasonably? And she said, I think I could ask for three hours every Saturday. I was like, great. That's three hours you didn't have before. Mm. And um, she just set that aside and went right to it. And because that time was set aside specifically for creativity, uh, she found it really helpful. Mm. The last thing that I would say, I don't personally do this, but I know a lot of artists who find this helpful is when you have that blocked off time, have some kind of ritual thing you do that gets you into the moment maybe it's you look up a poem and you hand transcribe that poem and then you put it away and you sit down to work or you light a candle or you know whatever it is just have something you do the moment before the muse arrives and you will i think train the muse to actually arrive
4: (laughs)
3: that is some high quality advice right there i want to add one note um one thing that you don't mention, Caller, is why you're looking to find time to write. Like, is it for personal satisfaction, as a kind of therapy, or is it something that you do or would like to do for money? I mean, probably it's a bit of both, but, and I'm kind of nervous saying this and get ready to shoot me down, Isaac, but I think if you're struggling to find time and mental space to write in order to make money, like, just don't bother. It's really, really hard to break into journalism or screenwriting or to support yourself from book writing. And obviously people do it and more can do it. And a big part of this show's purpose is to help people figure that out. But if you are experiencing a period of intense stress over really challenging life situations, and I know that more people than ever are doing so right now, Writing to sell probably isn't going to work out unless you're already well-established in a writing career. Now, finding 15 minutes to journal or 45 minutes to work on an essay or a story for the fun of it, for satisfaction or to distract you from all your problems, fantastic. But maybe leave it at that, at least until some of the stress dials back.
2: June, I have no interest in shooting you down. I think it is absolutely uh, worth figuring out why you're doing what you're doing and and whether it's worth doing right then. Um, And I also think that scheduling the time might be scheduling something for weeks from now or, you know, whatever. There might be some moment of hope you're looking for. Uh, There's a moment of hope we're all looking for as the vaccine becomes more readily Mm. available. So Mm. hopefully there's also that some of the external stuff will get a little bit easier for all of us and creativity will be a little bit easier to maintain.
3: Yeah, I hope so, caller. Thanks for your call.
2: We hope that you've enjoyed this show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, it is time once again for the Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but more importantly, you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
3: Thanks to Abby Creighton and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Romance Conversation with food writer, Julia Tertian. Until then, get back to work.
2: Anatomy of an ad.
1: Subconsciously trigger emotions through music.